I'm going to ask you to take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2, the second chapter of Acts. There's the name, by the way, of a singing group uh, in the 70s and 80s. Some of you may remember that, some of you don't. But the second chapter of Acts this morning we take a look at. Back in the 1970s and 80s, there was a bumper sticker that many Christians put on the back bumper of their automobiles. It said, Honk if you love Jesus. Well, I like one a whole lot better that says, Tithe if you love Jesus. Anybody can honk, right? Anybody can honk. The Christian life demands some commitment, doesn't it? Tithe if you love Jesus. Anybody can honk. Last two Sundays have been very special days in the life and in the history of our church. On buggy days, we answered the question, what do these stones mean? Uh, A question from, of course, the third and fourth chapters of the book of Joshua, where the children of Israel on the edge of greatness, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, looking across that river into the Promised Land, God, of course, piled up the waters of the Jordan River and allowed them to cross as on dry ground, and they set up that memorial of stones, piled them up there as a witness and as a memorial of all that God had done for them that day. And we talked about the awesome things that God has done in the history of our church as well. Then last Sunday, of course, we switched from the past to the future and shared a message entitled, For the Generations Following. I use Psalm 48 as our theme scripture. It instructs us to tell the generations following that this God is our God forever and ever. And I said in that sermon last Sunday that what we decide to do today will tell the generations following about our faith. And of course, you did the right thing. You voted without opposition to build a new student young adult building, and I'm so proud of you. This morning, we return to our series on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and in order to start preparing us for the new capital campaign starting in the winter of 2019, I'm going to share with you a message about the generosity of the Holy Spirit. The generosity of the Holy Spirit. You see, after we finished paying off our children's building in 2015, You needed a bit of a financial rest, so I gave you a bit of a financial rest. My policy through the years had been to preach only one stewardship sermon a year as long as you guys kept up with budget. And you know I've given you more than grace in this process. For the last several years, we've gotten behind budget, and you've still only gotten one stewardship sermon a year. Sometimes you didn't even get that one because we were trying to kind of lay low with regard to stewardship sermons after a very difficult campaign in which you raised $3 million over and above our regular giving. And again, we're so proud of you for that. But of course, there comes an end to all good things, and now we're over $60,000 behind budget, and it's time to crank out a few stewardship sermons if we're going to make things work. And I'm going to share with you how we got to that point of $60,000 behind budget, but... What I want to do today, of course, is talk to you about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in terms of generosity. And I've tried to remind you in each sermon in this series that the Holy Spirit is the invisible presence of Jesus fulfilling God's purpose of redemption in and through His people, the church. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but it's a good definition for who, not what, but who the Holy Spirit is. The invisible presence of Jesus fulfilling God's purpose of redemption in and through His people, the church. Is it possible that the way that we give is a part of God's purpose of redemption? It certainly is possible. It, in fact, is fact. What we do today is to show you that generosity 
is one mark of a spirit-filled life. Generosity is one mark, not the only mark. But generosity is one mark of a spirit-filled life. So let's begin with a simple concept. Number one, since the Holy Spirit is God, we would expect Him to share the same heart for generosity as the Father and the Son. Since the Holy Spirit is God, we would expect Him to to show the same spirit or share the same spirit, same heart, if you will, for generosity as the Father and the Son. Where can the heart of the Father and the Son be seen in all of its lavish, loving Generosity, of course, in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That wonderful verse gives us a simple, simple principle. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You can give without loving. We do it all the time, don't we? Somebody knocks on your door... You open the door and you see someone whose face you do not recognize and they've got their hand out. And they're receiving monies for any number, an infinite number, if you will, of of causes. I'm sure all good. And you give them something not because you believe in that cause, but because you want them off your front doorstep, right? And sometimes we give people money just so that we won't look bad. Maybe others are giving them money. Somebody's coming through our area and others are giving them money. And we give them money not because we love them, not because we love their cause, but because we don't want to look bad and be called miserly and stingy and greedy. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. God is the supreme example of that. God loved us so much that He sent His Son into a sinful world to save us. Jesus loved us so much that he came to die the most, uh, the death that the demons could devise, the worst death that the demons could devise. And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, is here to love us, to comfort us, to guide us, and to inspire us to give in a way that pleases God and blesses others. So as, as the Father and the Son demonstrate their love, so the Holy Spirit demonstrates His love for us as well. Secondly, I want you to see that Though every believer possesses the Holy Spirit, we must, be, we must strive to be filled with the Spirit. Though every believer possesses the Holy Spirit, we must strive to be filled with the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So every believer possesses the Holy Spirit, and yet Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 instructs us, do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery, instead be filled with the Spirit. It's one thing to possess the Spirit, it's another thing to be possessed by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. One of the things that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians is that there are two kinds of Christians, carnal or worldly Christians on one hand, and then spiritual or spirit-filled Christians, on the other hand. The carnal Christians do the minimum spiritual stuff that's needed to get by. Spiritual Christians, of course, give God their best and then invite the Holy Spirit to do His miraculous work through them. pastor was greeting folks at the back door like I do at the 11 o'clock service. Other services, I use this door because we're hoping people will stay for Sunday school and head that way. Pastor was greeting people at the door of the church, and as he was doing so, a lady came by and said, Pastor, that was a very good sermon today. And trying to be humble as he could possibly be, he said, Well, thank you, ma'am, but 
I have to give all the credit to the Holy Spirit. And the woman replied and said to him, well, it wasn't that good. You see, we can't do anything that good on our own, can we? We must be filled with the Spirit of God to do God's work, and we must be filled with the Holy Spirit to give the way that God expects us to give. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit inspired a radical generosity in the early church. The Holy Spirit inspired a radical generosity in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, it gives us the impact of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Look there with me, if you will. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Think about those words for just a moment. The truth is that as Dr. Luke wrote the history of the early church, those words described a church that was pure in life and powerful in deed. And notice especially the words that Luke records about the generosity of the early church found in verses 44 and 45. It says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, dear friend, that's not communism. And that's not socialism. Communism and socialism are political systems that are enforced by governments. Oftentimes, those at the top of those governments don't live on the same meager standards as those they're ruling have to live. Because the giving to the government is forced. And this wasn't forced giving. This was a giving, of course, in the early church, a radical generosity that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. People weren't forced to give. They gave because they wanted to give. And they wanted to give because the Spirit of God had touched their hearts and lives. In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, shares even more about this spiritual generosity within the early church. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had a need. And it's at that very exact moment in verses 36 and 37 that we're introduced to one of the most truly inspiring members of the early church, We're told that Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas was a radically generous young believer. And radical generosity makes an impression on all of us. It even made an impression on Jesus. You remember the story of the widow's mite found in the Gospels. This poor widow walks into the temple And in the temple there were these large receptacles made out of copper, trumpet-shaped in appearance. And the Jewish people would take their coins, and especially the rich among them would take their coins and they would throw them into the neck of that copper receptacle and they would clang all the way down as they twisted into the bottom of that receptacle and people oohed and awed over their giving. And Jesus was sitting in the temple one day watching that. And a poor widow walked in and she threw into that copper receptacle two mites. 
the word in Greek is the same word from which we get the English word leaf. They were leaf-thin coins. They made almost no noise whatsoever. She was quiet as a mouse as she walked over and threw her money into that receptacle. And nobody paid any attention to her. Nobody except Jesus. In His supernatural x-ray knowledge, He knew that this woman had not just given two mites, but she had given everything she had. And so he estimated the situation by telling his disciples, this woman has given all than, more than all the others because they all gave from their surplus, but she gave everything she had. She gave her last cent, we would say. When it comes to giving radically, we see it occasionally. And when we do, it inspires us. The outstanding preacher, Dr. George W. Truitt, who was the long-term pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, was helping a struggling church raise money for their new building. They still needed $6,500. This was a long time ago. I wish all we needed was $6,500. They still needed $6,500. Truett, though, found the response from the congregation rather weak. With only $3,000 pledged to the project, he finally said in exasperation, Do you expect me to give the other $3,500 needed to reach your goal? I'm only a guest here. Suddenly, a woman near the back of the church stood up and looking at her husband who was seated on the platform, uh, recording, of course, responses, she said to him, Charlie, I wonder if you would be willing for us to give our little home. We were offered exactly $3,500 cash for it just yesterday. And if the Savior gave His life for us, shouldn't we make this sacrifice for Him? Truett reported that the fine husband stood up from where he was counting those pledges and said, Yes, Jenny, I was thinking exactly the same thing. And turning to George Truett, Charlie said, Brother Truett, if it's needed, we'll raise our pledge by $3,500. Silence gripped that congregation. In a few moments, some of the members of that church began to weep. Those who 15 minutes earlier had refused to do anything were now doing something. And those who 15 minutes earlier perhaps had given meagerly were now giving generously. In a short time, their goal had been achieved and Charlie and Jenny didn't have to forfeit their home. Their willingness to sacrifice with radical generosity had inspired others to give with a similar generosity. And then fourthly, generosity is about more than just money. It's about everything that God has given us. It's about sharing everything that God has given us. In Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, we have the story of Peter and John at the temple early in the ministry of the early church. And as they're walking into the temple, a lame man, I suppose, tugs on their tunics and says to them, how about some money? You know, I'm a lame man. I've been sitting here for a while. It's the only way I have of supporting myself is by begging. And Peter, do you recall what he said? Silver and gold we don't have. But what we do have we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Get up and walk. The Bible tells us the man jumped up and began to walk and to leap and to praise God. Because these two fellows who didn't have any money gave what they did have. Peter and John, of course, are a great example for us. We need to give what we do have and share what we do have. According to a January 15, 1989 article in the Lexicon 
Harold Leader, the family living in a home in West Palm Beach, Florida, told a film crew that it was okay to use their front lawn as a set for an episode of the B.L. Stryker television series which starred the late Burt Reynolds in the title role. They knew cars would be crashing violently in front of the house on the front yard, but they told the film crew, come on and use our yard anyway. While the front yard was being blown up, the owner of the house was tipped off and called from New York demanding to know what was happening to his house. It seemed that the people who were living there were only tenants and had no right to allow the property to be destroyed as the cameras rolled. The moral of that story is simple. You can't share what you don't have, but you should share what you do have. You can't share what you don't have, but you should share what you do have. With regard to all the resources, the gifts and talents that God has given us, we must live as those who know God will call us to account for the ways that we have shared what He has entrusted to us in our lives. And lastly, we too, if we are filled with God's Spirit, will demonstrate a gracious generosity. We too, if we are filled with God's Spirit, will generate or will, uh, will demonstrate, excuse me, a gen- gracious generosity. Look with me, if you will, at Second Corinthians chapter eight, verses one through seven. It says, now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do this as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you excel in this grace of giving also. Notice those final words of verse 7. See to it that you also excel in this grace of giving. Yes, giving should be our response to God's grace in our lives. Giving should be our response to God's grace in our lives. It should not be something we do out of a sense of dull duty. Nor should it certainly be something that we do primarily because of the tax benefits it brings to the giver. In fact, the new tax bill for 2018 called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act will prove whether or not church givers have been giving for the right reasons. It will impact 30% of taxpayers who have traditionally itemized their deductions, including their charitable contributions. The new tax bill has raised the standard deduction, $12,000 for individuals, $18,000 for heads of household, $24,000 for couples that are married couples that are filing jointly. A number of churchgoers are going to find that with the new standard deduction, it offers them greater tax benefits than all of their itemized deductions put together. And when they do that, some of them may stop giving to the church. As a matter of fact, our Georgia Baptist Convention has warned us that our receipts for this year, our incoming receipts for this year, will probably drop by 5 to 10%. And we're going to have to make adjustments for that. That accounts, or that may account, for part of why our budget is now over $60,000 below what it should be. There's another difficulty that our budget is now facing. Melinda Merritt, our financial director here at First Baptist, tells me that more of our folks are designating their giving than ever before, and that also accounts for some of our budget shortfall. 
As I understand it, the reason for that is primarily because of differences that some of our folks have with what leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention or the Georgia Baptist Mission Board have said or written. And I'm not entirely unsympathetic. Several years ago, I led our church to change the way that we give to the cooperative program, which is money split 50-50 between the Southern Baptist Convention and the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. I wanted us to get more missions buying for our missions buck. Are you with me? I wanted us, I wanted more of our money to go to missions and less of it to go to bureaucracy. And so we changed the way that we were giving. Instead of giving a lump sum of 8.5% to the cooperative program, we're now giving 5% of our undesignated receipts to the cooperative program, 2.5% directly to the International Mission Board, and 1% directly to the North American Mission Board. Why did we do that? We did that because we still have the best mission-sending agencies in the history of the Christian church. And we need to support them. Can I get an amen? Thank you, I'll pay you back later. Now, as your pastor, I don't know much about who is designating their giving, and that's how it should be. I don't need to know those things. I don't typically know those things unless individuals tell me. But may I make a plea with those of you who are. You see, when when you designate your giving in order to avoid funding various Southern or Georgia Baptist causes, then the burden of financing, listen to me, the burden of financing all the utilities, of financing all the salaries, of financing most of the ministries of the church falls on others. And I don't think that's the way our people want it to be. I don't think they want or expect others to pay their way. Not when they can do it themselves. So let me make a suggestion. If you want to designate your giving, if you're saying, I don't want any of my money to go to the Southern Baptist Convention or the Georgia Baptist Convention, or for that matter, Centennial Baptist Association, if that's what you're saying, that's up to you. That's your privilege. But if you want to help your church, please follow this suggestion. Designate your giving to what we call our operating reserve. Designate your giving to what we're calling our operating reserve. That way, none of your giving goes to Southern or Georgia Baptist causes or even to Centennial Baptist causes. But you do help us pay the light bill, the cost of staff salaries, and most ministries. And I hope that we will all imitate the gracious giving that God has first bestowed on us through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close with the story of a man who had a heart attack and was rushed to the hospital. He could receive few visitors and he was not to be excited, of course. While in the hospital, his rich uncle died and left him $10 million. And his family wondered how to break the news to him. They didn't want him to get too excited. Didn't want him to have another heart attack. So it was decided to ask the preacher. Preachers have a way with words. Ask the preacher to go and tell him this wonderful news in such a way that he wouldn't get all excited and be in danger of another heart attack. So the preacher went and made small talk for a while, gradually worked his way up to the subject. And the preacher finally asked him, what would you do if you inherited $10 million? And the sick man said, well, I I think I would give half of it to the church. And the preacher dropped dead. (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice to have some drop-dead giving about right now? We could use some drop-dead giving 
about right now. Jesus didn't drop dead, did he? But he did die for you and me. And we're going to celebrate that today in the most important celebration we ever take place together, we ever take part in together as a church. And that's the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us today. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to make the decisions that would please you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.